I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. listeners. I'm your host, Cullen. Today we have a very special episode. I have author of Sisters in Arms, Female Warriors from Antiquity to the New Millennium, uh, Julie Wheelwright. This is a book from Osprey. Uh, I, I picked it up three months ago, and uh, it is, it's now up there with my Keegan and my Hanson and my Kagan. It's a fantastic read. Uh, I'm very excited to have Julie Wheelwright here to talk to you about it today. Um, so first off, thank you, Julie, for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, and uh, and if you could, just give us a little bit about uh, what got you into your career, I guess, and, and how you ended up writing this book and, and what you've been up to. Okay, well, um, I actually, th- this has been a really interesting writing project for me because I originally wrote about uh, these cases of cross-dressing women warriors in the 1980s. And my book originally came out in 1989, and it was called Amazons and Military Maids. And the reason why I got interested in that in the topic in the first place was not actually about someone in the military, but it was about someone in sort of, I guess we could call a quasi-military operation, which was the Hudson's Bay Company. So what happened was, I'm actually Canadian. I was taking a course at the University of Toronto on the history of women in Canada, and I had uh, a professor who told this story about a woman named Isabel Gunn. So Isabel Gunn was um, living up in Orkney, it was the time of the Napoleonic Wars, so a lot of the men were either off, I mean, they'd been press ganged, or they were off on the whaling fleets. And so it was the women were doing the work. And uh, so Isabel Gunn decides that she's going to join the Hudson's Bay Company. And so she, you know, uh, rocks up to um, Kirkwall and signs on. As John Fubister, she goes off to the Northwest and she's doing really well. She gets pay rise. Um, I mean, unfortunately, we have none of her words. And with so many of the women in this book, we don't have, you know, what they think and they feel and, you know, why they do what they do. But anyway, with Isabel Gunn, she's, you know, as John Fubister, she's doing really well, canoeing 1,800 miles up and down the uh, these inland waterways. And then it's New Year's Eve and... Uh, this Orkney lad, John Fubister, knocks on name, by the way. <laughs> of one of the, um, it, it, uh, you know, it's it's uh, she's at Pembina Post on the Red River, and she knocks on the door of one of the company officers, and he writes in his diary that the Orkney lad was feeling indisposed, lay down on the hearth, and proceeded to give birth to a son. Um, so this was obviously a huge deal at the time because uh, because she was a white woman um, and because she was <laughs> she was woman this is the first white baby and white woman because the um, the the laborers weren't allowed to bring their wives or their families with them. 
And so that story just, like, I was so fascinated by that. I thought, what an <laughs> thing to do. And then I started looking into, um, uh, I mean, I was doing my postgraduate degree in London at the time, and I had access to the British Library and started finding all these 18th century stories, and then 19th century stories, and then is a, and then uh, Flora Sands, who was an Englishwoman who went off and fought in the Serbian you know, with the Serbian army during the First World War. And then there were even cases from the 1930s. And I start off the book with someone who wasn't, who just pretended to be a warrior, which is the case of Colonel Barker, um, who married another woman in Brighton in the 1920s. And uh, didn't he, she, she only got found out because she was taken off to Brixton prison on a fraud charge. And, uh, at, you know, it was was objecting to the um, the prison doctor examining her. So, you know, it seemed to me that there was this incredible and unwritten history about these women who had either participated openly, because there's lots of cases of that, uh, women who had disguised themselves as men for a period of time, and then also these legions of women. So, for example, we know during the during the French Revolution, there was a period in which we had the femme soldat who were allowed to go off. And then all these Russian stories as well. So I came to revisit this subject um, because Osprey uh, sort of invited me to, um, to to redo the book. And um, because the book was written so long ago, it was kind of a bit of a pioneering book, I guess, because lots of other people have picked up on the topic. And, you know, historians, well, as you know, kind of, historians always borrow from each other and they build on what their colleagues have done. And so I was able to take advantage of, of some of that work. And one of the people who, well, not just one person, but um, several archaeologists, in fact, had actually gone back and, and found some incredible information about what we understood to be the Amazons. So the Amazons are kind of like this founding myth about these women warriors. And the Greeks have have um, hundreds of stories about them. And, and, you know, we're fascinated by them and put them on their vases and you know they very play a very important role in in greek culture but what these archaeologists in the 1990s were finding was that they went to these tomb sites in the area around the black sea and uh these tomb sites that had been designated as sort of uh both a male and a female body um they were able to use these new forensic techniques and found out that the women the female skeletons actually had wounds that were similar or even identical to those that the men had. And so what they were able to conclude from that and from other evidence was that these women had actually been warriors. And so they, these Scythian women were actually the root of the myth about the Amazon. So these women really existed. And, and there's a wonderful historian named Adrian Mayer, and she actually talks about how these Scythian tribes nomadic and they've roamed all the way to China so we've now got the Disney's just redone the story of Mulan mm -hmm. and uh, Mulan is one of these women so so that is the founding really? that's the founding yes that's the founding myth and what is incredible about finding these stories um you know and I say you know from antiquity to you know the Amazons crop up still during the first world war and beyond uh is that um you know, there's this uh, this uh, kind of myth about them. And in fact, they're actually rooted in reality. And the other thing that was so interesting about these Scythian 
women and coming across this new information was the connections with the Russians, because there's this very strong t- tradition in Russia of, of women uh, engaging in active warfare. And so, um, you know, we have in the 18th century have Desna Dodrova, who um, was actually married and had a child, uh, but she decided that she wanted to become a soldier. So and that there's a really interesting link here, too, with some of, you know, uh, with female warriors, because Desna Dorova's father um, decided that her nanny was going to be his Batman. So this is, you know, the man who was his sort of military servant, if you will. And he gave her a sword. He taught her how to ride. Um, You know, she had a little mini uniform made for her. So often with these women, you find that there is some family connection um, so that they've got brothers who go off or they've got fathers who are um, who are soldiers or officers. And that's their link. And they think, well, well, if if my father and my brothers are going off, why not me? Um, and also, you know, they may be trained and be given weapons trainings or have access to uniforms. So they're kind of sort of logistical reasons why they might be going off and following them. But in the case of Nadezhda Durova, she goes off and she be, she joins a cavalry unit. She fights uh, in wars in 1807, between 1812 and 1814. So this is during the, the Napoleonic Wars. Um, and then she comes she comes home again. Uh, but continues to dress in men's clothes. And she also writes, uh, she start, she becomes a writer. And uh, in the 1830s, she publishes a memoir, which is published by Pushkin. And uh, and then sort of 30 years on, when the what was called the woman question was being debated in Russia. So, you know, women were kind of agitating for, for more rights um, and access to suffrage and that kind of thing. Um, these young women would come and they'd play pay homage to Nadezhda Durova. So that was the other theme which was really important in this, I think, in my book, is the, the connection between having access to um, military participation and to participate in, in military conflict was seen as an entree into women having greater uh, civil rights. So that doesn't often happen. No. <laughs> these, these poor women are often you know, very disappointed. And we can certainly look at that in, you know, in the case of, um, you know, there there is some movement, for example, in Britain, you know, after the First World War, after the Second World War, but they, you know, I think these women are sort of expecting a revolution and things don't quite work out that way. But just to go back to the Russian case for a minute. Um, so there was Nadezhda Darova, you know, uh, 18th century, 19th century warrior, um, and then by the time of the First World War, what you find is you find all these women who are petitioning to be soldiers in the Tsar's army, and some of them cite Nadezhda Darova as a precedent. So they're not only aware of this history, but they're also aware of her because there's a, there's a woman who writes children's books, very popular books for girls in particular, about a princess who is based on Nadezhda Darova. So these girls' adventure stories. So that's another way in which the stories are popularized. But, but um, and then, you, you know, you have the, uh, the civil war in Russia, and you also have, obviously have, you know, the revolution, and you have these female soldiers who keep propping up. And one of them I mentioned, who actually has an American connection, is uh, Maria Bochkareva, who um, uh, Louise Bryant wrote about. So Louise Bryant was the partner of John Reed, who wrote um, Ten Days That Shook the World. 
Um, so these, these were American journalists who had come over, and Louise Bryant interviewed Maria Bochkareva and interviewed several of the, um, the uh, members of the Women's Battalion of Death. There were other, Bessie Beattie, I mean, there were other American female journalists who had also done this. So they were really important figures um, during the First World War because not only were they reported about, but also they were reported about in the American press. So, you know, the lots of amazing pictures of them in the New York Times and other papers in the States. Um, so this is also kind of coincides with a debate that's going on in America at the time anyway about whether women should have should have access to the military, they, whether they should be soldiers or not. What part are they going to play in the First World War? So, so in um, in 1918, uh, Maria Bachkareva actually comes over to the U.S. on a tour. Um, she's sponsored by an American uh, supporter, you know, a suffrage of women's a supporter of women's suffrage. So again, that link is made between between political participation and military participation. And Maria Bochkareva uh, has her memoir published at that time. And, uh, and then one of the things that I, that I found, again, which also seemed an incredible coincidence, well, not coincidence to me, but just sort of uncovering this history, was that in 1942, we have uh, Ludmila Pavlichenko, who is credited as the most pro- you know, I suppose, prolific sniper during the Second World War. And in 1942, she comes over on this sort of propaganda tour and she's fated and and Woody Guthrie writes a song about her and she stays at the White House. She goes on tour with Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, Again, you know, sort of all this praise and interest in her. And she writes an article, or there's an article rather sort of attributed to her in the American Communist Party magazine, and guess who she references? She references Nadezhda Durova. Of course, probably yeah. her favorite uh, childhood fairy tale, or, you know, children's book or whatever it might have been. Yeah, so, that's fascinating. Yeah, so it's so it's not just that these women became sort of popular figures, and we don't know, you know, all of this a lot. Well, rather a lot of this stuff was sort of completely new to me when I was when I started out doing this research, and I feel like you know there's still more to find out all the time. But um, when when Pavlichenko came to the U.S., it was really almost funny because, you know, here's this woman who's known for having killed, I don't know, 310 Nazis. Um, and, uh, you know, she's a sniper. She's really, you know, she's been through these, um, you know, these terrible, terrible battle situations and, and also claimed that she had seen her husband and child murdered by the Nazis and had to, you know, had to flee her home. Um, but, uh, you know, she's been asked what color lipstick she wears and, you know, that kind of thing. Like, what, what's your fashion at the front? And, you know, she's really offended by this. I would be offended by those kind of questions as well. But it's really funny because when she goes to, um, when she goes to Britain in 1942, um, you know, the, the Brits have already been sort of, uh, you know, kind of prepared for her arrival by the American press. Um, but, you know, she actually sort of says, I don't want any questions about lipstick. I don't want any questions about my boots or my hat or anything like that. And and, and all these women flock, you know, these women who are, are um, working in the armaments industry or who, who are being encouraged to be sort of warriors um, and support the war effort 
find her, you know, a really important sort of iconic figure. And in fact, um, there's a historian who's, who's um, come up with some wonderful research that reveals how the British government actually used these Soviet women as sort of propaganda figures. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have these really important cultural and historical links with these women. I think they have a lot, a lot to tell us. Well, I, I know that uh, I know that that's true because I think, you know, for me, Amazons are, you know, I, I knew about the Amazons. I've, I've heard of the, the night witches and I've read about uh, female pirates and people that have played ancillary roles. But your book really made it clear to me that these aren't one off independent occasions or just, you know, individual occurrences. There is a long, long history, uh, just as, as as storied and, and detailed and adventurous and horrific in its own way as as men in battle and in war. Um, but obviously, uh, we don't know about it. We don't read about it. I, I I've read for thirty years now about military history, and I'm, I've taken an active interest. This is the first time where I've read a book entirely about women. In just followed, and it's not from any lack of interest. I'm totally into it. It's just that the material, um, the material's harder to come by. So one of the questions I had for you is: uh, it seems like there's a good amount of antiquity uh, information, and then there's a great deal of stuff from the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s. Is there just a lack of source material to pull from? in the, you know, 1110 AD. Um, I would assume that, the, you know, there's not much in the way of, you know, at the Battle of, of you know, Tetterbarger Wald or whatever. There's not much information about the females that took part. Although I have to assume they were there. It makes... Yeah, well, well, there is... Uh, I'm going to... I'm going to point you to a historian named uh, Linda Grant Dupas, who um, she used to run, a, I think it was a website called Minerva and, and would collect all these amazing stories about female warriors. And she's also written a wonderful sort of compendium of them. So that information is out there. But, okay. but as you can imagine, um, this was such a ridiculously big topic for me to take on. So I was trying to pull out threads and to sort of follow ones that, that had a thematic link. So, I mean, you know, whether we're, we're talking about sort of, um, you know, Boudicca, the queen of the Iceni, or mm-hmm. we're talking about Joan of Arc, you know, I was trying to, to look at some yeah. iconic figures. Um, women were active in the Thirty Years' War um, in the 17th century. They were also active. And in fact, um, there's a British historian named Mark Stoyle, and he's found several cases of women fighting during the English Civil War. Um, and, 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 you know, as you pointed out, it's quite true that there are mu- there's much more documentation about the 18th century. So there are these scattered references. And again, someone, you know, and there are many people, many historians out there who have pulled some of these cases together. But I chose to concentrate on the on the periods when there were many more cases. And also, as I said, so I could make that thematic link. I mean, one of one of one of the. Um, periods that we haven't touched on is the American Civil War, because mm. there were something like 400 documented cases. So, And, and the American Civil War is so interesting because, um, because it was a period when, when there were sort of increasing 
rates of literacy, so more people were writing letters, and those letters weren't actually censored. And so, um, again, there have been historians who found, um, you know, several documented cases of women who had disguised themselves uh, as men to go up, to go off and fight on both sides, or um, cases of women who had, you know, they followed their husbands or they had just been there. So, you know, it's interesting when you say that these women don't crop up, you know, you haven't, or, or they, they kind of crop up in these sort of almost anecdotal Almost like footnotes, and that's what I found as well. But if you think about that, about it, when you start to put them together, and you start to see this pattern where, like, you know, if you, if we think about the Thirty Years' War, for example, you know, these women are going along on these campaigns, and these campaigns last for months and months, and sometimes they're even there for years. So it's almost like a sort of permanent encampment. And and some of the roles that the women are playing, you know, they're they're sutlers, so they're selling meats and wines, um, they're picking up the guns and picking up whatever valuables they can, you know, they can find on the field, or they're working as laundresses. And working as a laundress at that time is a huge job, you know, to to clean weapons or to to clean uniforms, making shirts, selling shirts. So there's a whole kind of industry that goes along with with these early um, armies and that's all women's work and so if you were a woman I mean and I, I actually start off with going to um, you know this description of being at um, at a reenactment. Oh, I loved that by the way that was awesome. Great 18th century reenactment and I just thought well I want to be with I want to be with the you know these people running around the field that looks like a lot more fun to me than just being in the camp and making the sandwiches and <laughs> Um, so, um, yeah, so I can understand that too. And I think that it kind of, you know, when I was doing my research for this, I mean, I'm not someone who would ever want to go off and join the military, but I wanted to look at why women would want to do that. And, and so sometimes you're looking at these cases of women who, you know, we mentioned the family connections, their brothers and their fathers are going off. Sometimes, you know, they have no choice. Like, I, you know, I, there was a woman who um, was in the Women's Battalion of Death who was interviewed by Louise Bryant, and she said, well, my village burned down. Or we have Marina Yulova, who, who, who's like she's 14 years old, and, and she goes, oh, you know, this, this is in the, um, the Cossack region in Russia. Her father is going off with his regiment, and she just somehow manages to get onto the train. I think it's an accident. And then what does she do? She can't find him at the other end. And so she becomes a soldier. So, you know, you have these kind of accidents or you have, you know, this kind of logical extension of what they're doing already, um, or they have some extra experience, you know, um, you know, they know they have weapons training, they know how to ride a horse and all of those things that are very valuable. And then the other thing is, you know, a, a, a sheer question of numbers or of labor, you know, why not have women, soldiers if your numbers you know you know if you're in a situation where things are very dire i mean in the same way that that at the end of the first world war the end of the second world war you know the germans are recruiting young boys and old men you know and again that was another thing and so much of what i think what i was looking at in this book is about perceptions there are these there are these individual cases of these german women soldiers kind of soldiers in scare quotes who show up in the First World War, and actually they're part of these auxiliaries, but the auxiliaries are so far into the field, they're attached to, you know, 
German units and yeah, you know, the front line, the, the front line and the rear, it all gets a little muddy. Um, so I think that's, and again, but they're sort of reported as Amazons, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that I, I think one of the things that uh, really came home after or while reading this is there's a certain, um, uh, you know, there's a there's always a propaganda aspect to it when they were talking, you know, yeah. same with and, and I don't know who chose the images in the book, but I loved some of the images in here. And, and that, you know, even even though you know we're talking about again you you mentioned the um i'm blanking on the name but the the russian sniper who they asked her oh, what kind of yeah even that has to you know somehow we have to bring the sex aspect into it and somehow we have to make it like you know are you single uh, my wife and i just finished watching the documentary on the challenger explosion mm. and they were interviewing uh, tom brokaw's interviewing this brilliant nasa scientist astronaut and in the process, he mentions, oh, by the way, you look very cute and she's single, folks. And it to the same kind of mentality of like, why? Why would that come into the conversation? Yeah. Um, but it yeah. seems like it's never it's never far away. Um, one of the things that I also really thought was interesting while reading this is that it seems like regardless of sex, the effects of battle and war have the same weight and toll. Um, and the same kind of lottery aspect. Some people get, get out and they seem to be fine and they make a great life. And some people find themselves in a gutter, penniless, you know, in a bottle or, 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 or live through um, horrible PTSD. And I didn't know if, if you found um, in your research, if, if that is something that goes back as far as you were researching, uh, if you saw that trend throughout your research or if it was, yeah, that, that's a really, really good um, question to ask. And it's such a, uh, yeah, it's such a complicated thing, isn't it? I mean, one of the things that seemed to be quite consistent was, um, particularly for these women who were, you know, if they're the only woman in, you know, in a regiment, let's say. Um, and, and I had um, much more access to Flora Sands' experience um, than anyone else's. So Flora Sands was this English woman who had gone off to Serbia and was actually with the Serbian army from 1915 onwards to the end of the war. And then she stayed on, um, married a Russian who was a fellow officer and sort of stayed in Belgrade until after the second, well, I mean, she had to leave during the, during the second world war, but she describes things like, you know, once she's left, she's left the army, she goes off to see one of her former officers and, um, you know, she's, she describes, you know, she's, she's wearing a dress and she's got a hat and she's got her handbag and everything else. And she knocks on his door and he answers it and he throws up his hands in horror and says, I can't talk to you dressed like that. And he makes her change into a uniform before he can speak to her. And one of the things that, that came through really poignantly um, in her story was just how lonely it was because she was occupying this very strange territory where you know she was definitely one of the men um uh and and they really valued her because because she was english she was able to go back and do all this fundraising and after the war she was like this kind of unofficial ambassador but there was no place there was no kind of social place for her afterwards and um you know even even during the war she also describes a couple of times when she's on r and r and, uh, you know, the um, she says sort of almost like, you know, there's a ball, there's a dance. 
And, um, you know, the men are in their uniforms and she decides to come in a dress. And again, it was the same thing. The men said, oh, you know, we don't know what to do with you when you're dressed like that. Um, so you've got this sense of, you know, this kind of loneliness. But also, um, you know, as Svetlana Alexeyevich, who, who wrote this magnificent study of um, the Soviet women's experience during the Second World War, uh, there was one woman she interviewed who, who said after the war, we were as silent as fishes. And I love that quote because I think that that kind of, it, you know, it, it really resonates because it they describe coming back from this, you know, incredible experience. I mean, they did everything. And um, Alexeyevich actually says that they had to invent this new language because there was a lot of positions that these women occupied for which there were no sort of feminine nouns. And so they, you know, literally they, there's no language for them. But she said that that often... These women, when they came back to their villages, everyone assumed that they were, you know, they were prostitutes, that that was why they had gone to the front. And um, so that's why they didn't talk about their experience. And that was just seems so incredibly sad that, you know, um, as you said, you know, they may have been deeply traumatized by what happened to them. And yet they had no way of expressing that, no one to express that to. Because I think that even amongst themselves, they didn't talk about these experiences. So... Um, yeah, I think that women have had a really, a particularly difficult time. Not that anyone has a has an easy time, um, but I think there is a sort of particular dynamic for women. And I would assume, from the male point of view, that seeing the person you served with, who you put your life in their hands, and they put their life in your hands, and you had that very, very specific bond, uh, to then see them in their true self in a dress or with long hair or with makeup in that time period, I can see a man instantly being very, well, you're reminding me that I at one point relied on a woman to protect me. And that's gotta be an incredible, from their mindset, that's gotta be a very emasculating moment. Hmm. Well, you know, I'd never thought about it that way, but actually you're absolutely right. That's, that's a great way of, uh, summing it up i mean it's yeah. it's sad it's terrible on both you know for both people involved i would assume that's a terribly sad situation but um i can just say that that story you told me is very strikes a tone the the next couple of questions are more about the future um the future i would hope at some point we i'm, I'm working on a project with another podcaster uh woman by the name of Nicole she's studying uh military history and we're doing a, a world war one podcast and oh cool one of the things that we, yeah it's very exciting and one of the things that we talked about right when we started working together is getting outside of being a female you know getting outside of being known as a woman historian or getting outside of being known as the woman military historian I would assume mm -hmm. the future is we're going to at some point try and get away from being known as like a female soldier and just known as yeah. a soldier. Do you see yeah. any trends in that direction? Is that something that is going to happen or is it always going to be the way? It is? I think it already is. I mean, one of the things that I was really pleased to find when I was doing my research this time around was um, how many how many um, uh, military women, <laughs> we'd have to use that term for the time being, but how many military women are actually doing, have gone into military uh, colleges and are doing their own research. Um, and there was a really big study done, uh, I think, in the 90s, 
and found that, you know, this issue about women in combat is really not, it's really not a big deal for the public anymore. And I think that there's now an understanding and acceptance that partly, you know, obviously warfare is changing all the time. Um, uh, you know, we were talking about the muddying between the front and the rear, which has probably always been there, but much more pronounced. Um, that, you know, I don't think women have to fight quite so hard for their place. I mean, that's not not to sort of trivialize their experience in any way. But I think that fact, the fact that particularly in America, where you have so many more women who are now in the upper echelons, mm-hmm. who have risen to the level of, you know, the highest office and who are also going into politics, I think that does make a really big difference. Um, so I think that I think these issues are always there because women I think women are always, are always going to be a minority I mean, I, I think we, it would, we'd be hard pushed to think that there was ever going to be sort of 50-50 split between men and women because we have obvious physical differences. But, but as we're reaching a point where those obvious physical differences become less important, maybe that's also going to um, mean that there not only will be more women, but also the dynamics will be different. And, you know, let's face it, we do, we do um, all now live in a world where, you know, we you know, maybe a less sexist world, maybe I'm being optimistic here, but um, I think that seeing women in positions of power is less of a problem than it was even when I was a child. I think absolutely you're right there. And and I think that's why books like this are really important for people in this field, people who even take a cursory interest in, in history or military history specifically. Um, it just shines a light on Certain areas that, for whatever reason, for whatever patriarchal reason or whatever it might be, have remained dark or in the shadows for for longer than they should have. Um, I don't want to steal too much more of your time. I was just wondering, is there anything that you're working on now? Any any books coming out in the future? Any projects anywhere where we can see your work or uh, anything that you like to... I would love it if everybody, you know, people listening, go out and buy my book. That would be terrific. Um, Sisters in Arms is uh, is still still available. Um, but I'm actually um, going back to thinking about, because I've also written a lot about female spies, and I've written a lot about Matahari. You can sort of just see a glimpse of her in the background here. <laughs> um, uh, but but I'm, I'm very interested in revisiting that subject. And, and, you know, there's a lot of crossover with the female warriors because you know again in that field women's participation has often been trivialized but my god those stories <laughs> I, I don't know they, they really are better than fiction as far as i'm concerned so all right so we can keep our eyes peeled for that i am going to be um I, i'll be posting some of this on instagram we'll be raffling off a copy of oh, sisters in arms and getting it out there uh hopefully in some some somebody's bookshelf soon i would uh, one of the things i noticed is you had uh Dan Snow uh, said that this is a book is going straight on my daughter's bookshelf. First off, Dan Snow is a great uh, historian. I love his work. But I would say don't just get it for your daughters. Let's get Sisters in Arms on your son's bookshelves, everybody's bookshelves, um, female warriors from antiquity to the new millennium. This has been Julie Wheelwright. And again, I'm Colin, your host. Uh, thank you for joining us, Julie. And, uh, and we really can't uh can't express our thanks enough uh we look forward to uh maybe talking to you sometime down the road yeah absolutely thank you so much it's been a pleasure all right right, guys so uh up next we have an episode on the battle of fort william henry 
or the siege of Fort William Henry, and then um, we are going to be tackling Kursk down the road. All right, we'll talk to you soon.